welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name's Oscar. My name's David. And this week, you mad, bro? It's a free agency frenzy, but not quite the way that fans expected, unless you, of course, were listening to this podcast, in which case you were expecting one move, even if it was at a much different price. I am super excited. It's officially Jarek McKinnon Day. We've got beers and purple cans. I'm wearing my 1987 NFC Championship shirt. Let's talk about this free agency frenzy. Let's do it, man. It was a busy, busy ass like couple days here. It was. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I always enjoy free agency like the the initial period. It gets boring, I think, very quickly, especially when NFL Network's been talking about Kirk Cousins for like the twelfth straight hour. Yes. Um, but generally a lot of fun. And we got some good players. Well, there's no Allen Robinson, there's no Sammy Watkins, there's no Andrew Norwell, and no Josh Sitton. Everybody panic. This is what you should be doing. Panicking. Get in your bunker, hang out with Brendan Frazier. Come out, have a movie made called Blast from the Past, and all is well. But I just don't understand why John Lynch hates all the good players. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, he hates can't all the good Can't figure it out. Yeah, if, you're, uh, if you can't hear in our voice, that would be the sound of sarcasm. Because the Niners had a strategy that was different than perhaps the one that we anticipated that they would pursue. It doesn't mean they didn't have a strategy nonetheless. Of course, the hashtag was aggressively prudent. That was what John Lynch said that they would do. And, and so my question to you, David, right off the top, before we get into the individual players that we've signed, is the Niners had money to burn, and they had positions of need, some of which aligned with some talent at the top of the market. And if you listen to our free agency preview, our, you know, our last episode was, was titled, It Starts With a Cornerback. And we thought that cornerback and interior offensive line were areas that they would upgrade. Why didn't they go after a team like, why didn't they go after a player like Allen Robinson why didn't they go after Malcolm Butler or Tremaine Johnson? Why did they take more of, you know, a, a well, I guess, aggressively prudent approach? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Sherman thing is a little bit different, right? We didn't really get a chance to talk about Sherman. He wasn't available until very late in this process. So it wasn't somebody that we covered during, you know, the free agency previews or anything like that. Uh, obviously, I mean, he's a guy that makes a lot of sense from a scheme standpoint. We're going to spend a lot of time, you know, not a lot of time, but a, a good chunk of time here kind of getting into him specifically. But, you know, you find a player that you think is a really good fit that that became available late in the process. Um, and then from there, I think, you know, they they saw every episode, it seemed like other than probably cornerback. I think we found ourselves like talking about a lot of the top market players and being like, eh. You know, I don't know. Like, there, there's definitely some things to like here. You know, there are some positive elements. But look, these players have a lot of question marks, too. And there's a lot of uh, unknowns associated with these guys, which you usually don't love when you're spending at the top of the free agent market, right? The the benefit of going uh, into free agency and, and getting a player at the top in there is this kind of element of certainty as much as you can have in pro football, um, you know, that's obviously greater than what you're experiencing with the draft or something like that. So, you're paying for this element of certainty, but I don't know that there were players at positions that people wanted uh, that really aligned with that. And I also think that there were some positions, wide receiver being kind of top among them, that weren't really as big a needs as a lot of a lot of fans felt like. Right? I, I think receiver is a spot where we we talk about there's not really a need to have this like quote unquote true number one guy. It's 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 a lot more about I mean, don't get me wrong, everybody would love to have Julio Jones on their team. Like that's dope. But for most teams, it's a matter of finding players that do some different things well that fit together and fit what you're trying to do offensively. And I think the 49ers were already in a good spot there. 
And it seems like the Niners did have players that they wanted to identify that they thought could add to the team. And they went out and they got those players. So let's talk about those players. We're going to break each one of the major signings down because we don't have a section for Brock Coyle. Sorry. Sorry, man. Not going to run out of time. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, Yeah, it's going to be an afterthought. But you know what? Hopefully, so will Brock Coyle. So (laughs) let's get to we're going to talk about Richard Sherman. We're going to talk about Weston Richburg. And of course, we're going to talk about the star of the podcast, Jarek McKinnon, 1R, Jarek the Jet. (laughs) He even comes with a cool nickname, Jarek the Jet. We've got the Jet and we've got the Cheetah. Yep. It's going to be Georgia Georgia Southern. Southern. That's right. So we're going to get to these players and we're going to break them down. And we're first going to talk about the contract because, of course, it's free agency and that matters. And then we're going to talk about the player and we're going to talk about how they fit the scheme, what they do well, and our impressions after watching film on these players. And then, of course, we're going to talk about any open questions that we have about the player and we're going to try and answer them. The questions that we've seen on Twitter from fans, questions questions that we've had ourselves about these players and it should round out the the big part of the free agency preview or the free agency review at this point because I don't know that the Niners are going to be super active heretofore outside of a couple of like wave two free agents, which yeah. I guess the only big one that's been rumored is uh, Terrell Pryor. Yeah, Pryor is the only, uh, I think, significant name at this point that they're kind of attached to. Um, and even then, they seem to get attached, again, to all of the the receivers that are available but never, it never seems to progress beyond that. So who knows where this one will go. But yeah, he's the big name there. I'm sure if there's a couple other signings, we'll kind of wrap it up a little bit at the top of next week's show. But yeah. this should, I think, really cover the bulk of the significant signings that they have during this period. I'll go ahead and go on the record right now and say that I would love Terrell Pryor as a one-year kind of prove-it signing. Uh, I think that, I don't know why his year wasn't nearly as good as it was last year, but I feel like two years ago, he proved that he could be that big red zone kind of target player. So, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go for it. What? Sure. Yeah, I mean, source, you got him. solid bargain option, yep. I think. Yeah. So let's get to Richard Sherman. Of course, the title of the podcast. If you don't know why the show is titled You Mad Bro, uh, well, then go Google it. Have a little fun. Enjoy some football history. But ultimately, Richard Sherman's the enemy. He's coming now to the 49ers. <laughs> if you would have told me in 2012 that Richard Sherman was going to be a 49er, I would have said, you are crazy. Stop smoking meth. It's going to mess up your teeth. And let's talk football. But instead, here we are. Just a few years later, Richard Sherman is a 49er. The contract, three years, $39 million. Now, of course, that number is a tad inflated because this is a heavily incentivized contract that more than likely, Richard Sherman's never going to see all $39 million. And if he does, it's going to be great because it means that he is like playing out of his mind. So essentially for him, like the the important takeaway with this contract is that there are just a a huge number of incentives that he has to reach in order to really get the full value of it. He basically needs to make the Pro Bowl, make the all pro team and play over 90 percent of the snaps in all three seasons to get to that full value number. And if he does those things. He's still only making 13 million per year, which is less than uh, you know what you've seen some of the the big free agent contracts to guys like Tremaine Johnson, guys like Malcolm Butler, um, you know guys at the top of that market are getting paid more than him. Tremaine Johnson ended up with something absurd, right? It was like 13, yeah, he got a massive deal 13, 14 million dollars a year. Uh, I mean, I think it, I forget exactly. I don't remember if something, but it was it I'll was fact big. Check. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was quite a large deal. So. I mean, he's he's going to be, you know, if, if he plays at that level, you're paying basically market value, not even above market value for 
one of the best players at his position, right? If, if he does all of those things. And, you know, obviously there are some question marks with him, but if he, if he doesn't play to that level, they're not going to pay him to that level, right? So it's, it's very incentive-based, um, and, and so I think uh, very team-friendly in that regard, and that's going to be something uh, that the Fortnite's benefit from, right? You, you want to kind of mitigate risk with, especially, I think, older free agent signings, uh, and that was something that they very much did with this contract. So ultimately, this contract is, I would say, a really, really good value for the 49ers because it gives them a lot of options. If ultimately Richard Sherman ends up not being great because he doesn't come back from his Achilles, then they've got options where they can pull the ripcord fairly early and it's not that big of a deal. But if Richard Sherman does return to form and he ends up being awesome, the Niners have the option to keep him and they get to keep him at, I would say, by the time, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020 rolls around, it's probably going to be below market value. When you look at the structure of the deal, it's effectively a one-year deal with team options in 2019 and 2020. Trigger dates are always key. And the Niners pretty much made their trigger dates in April, which means that they're able to get through free agency before they have to make a decision on, on Richard Sherman, which puts them in a pretty favorable position about what they have to do. And if the Niners cut him after a year, they see just $2 million in dead money, and that's per over the cap. So the cap number never surpasses $10 million. You're going to see at max a $2 million dead money hit, and the Niners have options to continue paying him if he performs well. Overall, this is a fantastic contract, I think, for the 49ers. Absolutely. Um, and I think considering, you know, again, even with corner, I think we, we liked corner uh, a little bit more than some of the other positions, um, especially because it was such a big need. I mean, this was the thing that they needed more than anything else this entire offseason was to upgrade cornerback and upgrade their their pass uh, defense in general. And so this was a big position to go after. Um, and I think, you know, he everybody at the top of this market had a few question marks, right? With Malcolm Butler, it was like, OK, he had a down year in his contract year. Tremaine Johnson, it was he's never really lived up to the potential type of thing. And you're, you're kind of really doing a little bit more projecting with him. Um, and so everybody kind of came with their warts. And so I think when you find a player that just absolutely, yeah, I mean, very obviously fits what you're trying to do because you're trying to mimic what he's been doing in Seattle, um, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, so just to fact check previously, Tremaine Johnson did indeed average over $14 million a year, $14.5 million a year, and it was a total guarantee of $45 million. So that's, I mean, he was getting paid, uh, which is good for him, man. A lot man. of money. I yep. love it. I love it when football players get paid. I'm never going to get mad. Oh, for sure. I'm never going to get mad about that. So let's talk about Patrick, uh, Patrick Sherman. Jesus, I'm already just taking Arizona quarterbacks or cornerbacks. This is, <laughs> with, this is already, you got... Three lit emojis at Can this point. Can we do Patrick Peterson instead? I mean, I'd, do, I'd be up for that. I mean, Honey Badger sure. is, is going to be the question that everyone I, is asking on Twitter. But let's talk say, about Richard Sherman, the player. He is the archetype for this cover three scheme. And because of the contract, he is a, bet, a really, really good example of a low-risk, high-reward signing. The thing that makes Richard Sherman great is not his athleticism or his speed. He is a fine athlete. But he's not a burner. He ran, you know, in the four fives when he was coming out of Stanford. But he's an excellent technician and he's incredibly smart. Oftentimes you hear players talk about him running the wide receivers routes for him because he understands concepts and he understands what wide receivers can do and how formations affect what wide receivers are intending to do. So there's a great video on NFL.com, which maybe we'll link it in in the podcast notes when we post this on Niners Nation. But he talks about how formations dictate everything in the NFL and how 
based on a formation and a wide receiver's alignment, he already knows the likely concepts that are going to be coming out of that formation. And then he knows, based on the initial stem, what a wide receiver is likely able to do or wants to do. So he's able to take this this kind of wide array of what an offense wants to do, and based on a couple of tells right away, he says, okay, well, personnel tells me one thing, formation tells me another, route stem tells me another, and he's just narrowing things down, and then eventually says, cool, well, basically it's going to be one of these three things, and then runs that route for the wide receiver, and it puts him in position to make a lot of plays on balls, which is evidenced by his high interception rate and his high pass breakups. You, you'll hear like a lot, especially now that we're like in peak draft season, right? Coming after, after this free agency period gets done with, uh, where you hear like play speed, right? Like, oh, you know, he ran such and such 40, but, uh, he doesn't play that fast or he ran a slow 40, but he plays much faster than that. And I think really what they're saying is, is play speed is, is the mental processing, right? So if you don't have the fast track speed, but you can process things mentally very, very quickly like Richard Sherman does. It can allow you to kind of play a little bit faster rather than the guy that has to maybe take a little bit longer to react and then close. It's kind of like uh, arm strength for quarterbacks, right? If you don't have great arm strength, you need to be more of uh, a, a thrower that uses anticipation and kind of is able to get the ball out a little bit earlier because you don't have the zip on the ball to really get it there in time. Whereas if you have great arm strength, somebody like Cam Newton, you can wait a little bit longer, right? Wait for that re- that receiver to really get open and then use your arm strength to get in there. It's kind of what that processing ability allows you to do as a corner. You don't need the great speed to keep up because if you know kind of what's coming, you can make sure that you're in the right spot. And this is something that uh, Sherman does incredibly well, maybe better than almost anybody else. Uh, and it's, it's very evident. I mean, you see him, he knows uh based on again like what the receiver split is what sort of stem that he takes if he takes an outside release an inside release all that stuff narrows down the possibilities of what the receiver can do and allows you to uh be in a position to know like okay i know i either got to worry if he takes an outside release i know i have to worry about the deep pass or a comeback or something like that right it limits those options and allows you to kind of be in good position uh and he he is again maybe better than anybody else at that and ultimately, he eliminates downfield routes. On deep passes, he's allowed a passer rating of 48.6 into his coverage since 2012. That's the fourth best, despite being the most targeted player on deep routes during that span. He's made nearly as many plays in the ball, 27 of them, as he's allowed completions, 29. I mean, he is the prototype for this scheme. And if he can get back to even, what well, like 80% of his form... He's still a pretty good bargain and a fantastic signing given the scheme and given the other things that he can bring to the 49ers roster. Yeah, so that's really the only question, right? Because it hasn't been that he, you know, he's going to be, I think he is 30 or he's going to turn 30 here real soon. Um, and so it's it's how well he can come back from this injury, right? Because it hasn't been really that his play on the field has started to decline. I mean, he's been one of the more consistent cornerbacks year in, year out for basically his entire career. And and I think he was still very good last year. You know, he was still playing at a high level, uh, still showing that he's capable of doing the things that he needs to be able to do to be successful in the scheme. It all comes down to, uh, is he going to be, you know, that same player coming back from this injury? So let's get to the questions for Richard Sherman, because I, I don't know that we need to spend too much time convincing you listeners that Richard Sherman is fantastic at football when he's at peak form. But I think the question for Richard Sherman is really going to be, do we think he's going to, to return to peak form? Or perhaps the better question is, what, what do you think the likelihood, David, is of Richard Sherman returning to 
like not even 2012 form where he was an all pro, but sure. like 2016 form or even 2015 form. Do you think that that's likely or do you think this injury is going to limit him such that it, it is going to make him a diminished version of Richard Sherman? It's tough. I mean, I don't think that having an Achilles injury is nearly as drastic as it used to be. I don't know that it's down to like ACL territory, right? Where a guy has an ACL at this point, you're not really worried about his career. You're just like, okay, it's going to take him like 10 months to get back and he's going to be basically the same player that he was before. Nobody's really worried about the long-term consequences of most ACL injuries at this point. Um, So I don't know that Achilles is like down to that level. I think it still can certainly impact players, but you do see more and more guys come back and be successful after that, right? I think uh, Junior Gallette is a player that we talked about during the free agency previews that came back from two uh, different Achilles injuries, uh, I I believe one on each leg, and uh, still was able to show a lot of the same burst and a lot of the same athleticism that he showed pre-injury. So you see a lot more examples of players able to come back. I mean, obviously, whether he will or not, uh, I don't think is really for for us to be able to say. You know, I think doctors will have a better answer. Obviously, the 49ers had to feel good enough about his medical checks that they were even willing to pursue it, right? They built in some fail-safes for him. Like, they built in some protection into the contract that, hey, if we're wrong on this medical check or things end up being worse than, than it is, we can go ahead and bail, and, and we, we haven't really been on the hook for a whole lot. But, uh, yeah, I think at this point, he seems, you know, obviously very optimistic about where he's at. I think right now everybody's saying that he's kind of on track to be there, ready to go for training camp. And if that's the case, I think you have to kind of expect him to be at least the player that he was last season before injury. I think the Niners have a $2 million roster bonus for 2018 that Richard Sherman is eligible for only if he is not on the pup list. So if he's on the pap list, if he's on the physically, <laughs> this is returning. Man, Colin way back. Colin there. way back. This is the pap list, the physically able to perform list. If he's on the pap list at the beginning of the year, he gets an extra two mil. So he's definitely incentivized. And I mean, he negotiated his own contract. So if if that's the if he believes he's ahead in his in his rehab, then that made sense to put that kind of roster bonus in. So it's a bit of insurance. Now, the only other question for for Richard Sherman, I think, is whether or not Sherman screwed up this deal as bad as everyone says he did, because Ben Volen from he writes for, I think, the Boston Globe. He wrote an article that basically skewered this contract negotiation. And the the gist of the story is that the Niners were able to play Richard Sherman such that they were able to extract a lot of concessions and items about in this deal, in the negotiation, that that most agents wouldn't have let their their player walk into. And that Sherman didn't do a couple of key things like continue to shop his services around to other teams or you know, take certain take certain things that maybe an agent wouldn't have been able or would have been able to avoid by creating a market for Richard Sherman. So is this is this deal so team friendly that you've got to look at this and be like, I appreciate what you're trying to do, Sherman, but ultimately you probably should have had an agent. I mean, I think he probably should have had an agent. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it's you know, it's it's on him, right? If if he feels like he can represent himself well enough and he ends up in a spot where he's happy, he has uh, enough money to where he feels content in that situation, then, you know, good on him. Like props to you. I, I'm not going to sit there and say that he shouldn't do that, but I don't think there's any question that he probably could have gotten a better contract if he had an agent, right? Like they're just not going to allow him to do certain things that he was comfortable doing. And I think it kind of take it takes advantage a little bit of 
players are always going to believe in themselves, right? Um, it, 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 whenever you have to say, oh, the player's betting on himself with this contract, it's not a good contract. Like, players will always believe that they can do it, as they should. That's how they got there in the first place. That's how they became the players that they are. But that doesn't mean that they're always right. You know, we saw Colin Kaepernick. This was the thing. Colin Kaepernick bet on himself. It didn't work out, out so well. Like, most of the time when you have contracts, and that's one of the first things that you say when you're bringing up how that deal is structured is that like, okay, if he plays well, everything's going to be great. It's probably not a, a, a great deal from a player perspective, right? From a player perspective, you want to get things, you want, you want them guaranteed, right? To where no matter what happens, if I get inj- re-injured again, I'm still going to be protected and I'm still going to be able to get some money. He doesn't have those protections. It's all reliant on him playing at a really high level. So let's get to the next free agent acquisition for the 49ers that made some news, and that was the acquisition of center Weston Richburg. While lots of places are reporting this as center guard Weston Richburg, let's be real, it is center Weston Richburg. <laughs> the contract, five years, $47.5 million, $16.5 million fully guaranteed, and that's the only real significant number that we have right now. Details for this deal have not come out nearly as quickly as the, um, well, we have more time for Sherman, but nearly as quickly as the, as the McKinnon deal. But even if we just take what we know, this amount, the $16.5 million, would amount to the fourth most, or the contract would be the fourth most among centers, and that's behind Mack, Frederick, and Linder, and those are the three best centers in football. So the 49ers really value Richburg as a top center in the NFL, and they're paying him as such. And I think this was something that we kind of overlooked a little bit, and I think this is something that Kyle Shanahan has kind of a history of um, and that we probably didn't take into account enough in doing free agency previews, and that's that... He values, when you look at offensive linemen, it's, of course, tackles, which everybody values. But then among your interior players, he really values centers more than he does guards. And I think he feels like that's a more uh, more important part of his scheme and the ability to execute what they want to do. And so I think that was a, a case where we were looking at the interior as a whole. And it's like, all right, you gave like any money to a center already in Daniel Kilgore that's going to kind of preclude them from going after another center. And and obviously that turned out to very much not be the case. That was the guy that they wanted to go out and get. That was the spot that they wanted to upgrade. And I think when you step back and, and really look at it, and again, look at it in the context of his offense and what he's done historically, it makes a lot of sense to upgrade that position. I mean, they tried to do the same thing last year. Last year they did that with Jeremy Zuta. And they, and they basically said, all right, Kilgore Zuta, you fight over center. And then whomever loses ends up trying to go at guard. And the problem was that Jeremy Zutat was like, no, nah, I'm not going to go ahead and play guard. And now Jeremy <laughs> Zutat is out of football. So the, the Niners basically try to take the same strategy, but rather than taking someone at more of a bargain price, I think what they realized is, hey, now that we have our quarterback, we're a lot closer than we were even last year. I don't know that we necessarily have the luxury of letting two you know, bargain bin or mid-tier players battle it out for center We've got to go and get the center that makes this system go. This is what he did in Atlanta with Alex Mack. And it's it's going to be such an important part of this offense that if Weston Richburg can perform as well as we think he can, it's going to elevate this offense immediately. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, get, let's get to the player. Because I think the contract right now, we don't have all the details. But I think it makes sense, right? That, uh, again, it's a, a position on the interior that he values most. Um, it's up there with the best centers in the league it's not going to be the highest paid center which i think is fair considering um you know kind of some of the injury trouble that he's gone through over the last couple seasons but 
Um, this was a spot where they wanted to go out and spend, and I and I think that's totally fine in the context of this offense. Um, as a player, he is absolutely in the mold that you want to see for this offense. He has the position skills that you want, or the excuse me, the movement skills that you want to be able to see from this position. Um, that's really, really evident on tape. I mean, from from pretty much one of the first snaps that you turn on of him, it's it's there, right? Anytime he has a chance to get out in space, you can see his athleticism. You can see how well he moves. Uh, he, he gets to the second level in the run game. And I think that's a, a, a big part, right? We've kind of glossed over, I think, a lot of the run game throughout these free agency previews. Um, but some of the toughest blocks in this outside zone scheme that Shanahan likes to run come from the center position, right? It's it's being able to reach shaded nose tackles, you know, uh, and, and be able to get them around so you can have a path for your running back to cut back on the inside. Uh, it's being able to get up to the linebackers. And uh, this was an area that we really saw Kilgore struggle last year. A lot of Kilgore's really bad plays in the run game came with just this inability to reach the linebackers at the second level and allow them to kind of get through and make contact close to the line of scrimmage. So you see somebody... Uh, that that is able to make those sort of blocks. And also the screen game. I think the screen game was something that they tried to do last year, but it wasn't always very successful because, you know, again, they didn't really have the offensive linemen that I think uh, were really ideal for that. And they didn't have running backs that I think that were really great for that. I think he, Weston Richburg is somebody that's really good in that facet. He was one of the highest, uh, had one of the highest grades on screen blocks during uh, 2015 and 2016, I believe. Um, so he's, he's going to add a lot there. And I think, yeah, it's just kind of that total package of everything that Shanahan's going to be looking for from that position. And here's the thing, y'all Weston Richburg is a fantastic pass protector and it's 2018. Let's talk about the pass game. Yep. Because this is the part of the game that matters. This is where you add the most value as a football team. This is where you score points. This is what you need to do well to win games. Just ask Tom Brady. He is a very, very good pass protector. When you look at 31 centers with at least 750 pass block snaps since 2015, Richburg has allowed the fourth lowest pressure rate at just 1.9%. The three players that bested him in this category are Rodney Hudson, Brandon Linder, and Travis Frederick, which are basically the gold standard at the center position. When you compare that to our current center, Daniel Kilgore, he's allowed pressure on 4.3% of his pass blocking snaps during that same span And that's the third worst. So this is immediately like bottom of the barrel pass protection upgrade to the top of the center position pass protection upgrade. So don't tell me that Jimmy Garoppolo loves Daniel Kilgore and that's why (laughs) Daniel Kilgore might play center, right? Yeah. I think Jimmy Garoppolo prefers staying upright than he does value his relationship with Daniel Kilgore. (laughs) And the other thing that you have to, to keep in mind with centers and pass protection, right, is they're in a position to help a lot. So, uh, you know, you'll you'll notice if you were paying attention during uh, a lot of the the guard talk that we had when we're talking about Josh Sitton and whatnot, the, that those center numbers in terms of pressure rate are lower than guards. Basically, the further you go inside on the offensive line, the fewer pressures that they tend to allow. They have fewer one-on-one blocks that they really have to deal with. And so when you have a really good center, he's in a spot to help out your guard. So you don't have to be, again, quite as good. They're really at guard. We're looking to get to competent. We, we just need to not be terrible. Don't be Zane Beatles there and you're going to be okay. And they're going to they're gonna look a lot better with a player like Richburg next to them because he's going to be able to, to help them out a lot, you know, in your kind of typical four-man rush situations there. 
And, and so it's going to kind of make everybody else around him look a little bit better as well. And you see that when you watch the film, you see Richburg, who he's got the, the, the kind of rap on him is that he's got a bit of a mean streak. And you see that on the film. He likes to hit people and he goes after them. And oftentimes it'll happen on that defensive line rushes. You'll see them kind of spread towards the guards and the tackles. And Richburg's in the middle and he's kind of back and he's, you know, he's got his kick step and he goes back and he's looking for someone to hit and he'll go help someone out. And he'll help a guard out one way or the other and figure out where where he can be most effective in that help. And he just likes to hit people, and it's great. Overall, his pass-blocking efficiency has never dropped below 98.5 as a center. Uh, he's never ranked worse than fifth. And he's only he only allowed 11 total pressures in 2016, 12 in 2015. If you look at what the Niners have done in that same span, Marcus Martin gave up 26 pressures in 2015, and Kilgore gave up 23 in 2016. So over, I mean, just hands down, he is a better center than what the Niners have had in San Francisco since Goodwin, basically. Uh, and, and I mean, Goodwin was a guy that we were able to do to have long playoff runs with. And so at this point, this is a tremendous upgraded center. We're paying him like an upgraded center. And I don't think there's any way that he's going to be playing guard. I think at this point, you move Kilgore to either a backup interior position or one of the starting guard spots. Definitely. I, th- I think you're going to be in a position where you have Kilgore, you have Josh Garnett, you have Lakin Tomlinson, um, you have probably Eric Magnuson, and then some sort of draft pick, right? Some sort of, I'd probably, I would say third round or later draft pick um, that's going to be in the mix. And, and of that group, you're going to find two guards that are going to be good enough, right? That they're going to be good enough that when you pair them with a top end center like Richburg and two good tackles, that everything's going to be fine. So let's get to the questions with Richburg really quickly, because there's a few here. There's more than we had for Sherman, because there's a lot of questions about him as a player, and there's a lot of questions about what he can do for the 49ers. And and the first one is, is he really a scheme fit for the 49ers, given what the Giants did last year? Definitely. So I think he's actually going to be a player that benefits from the change in scheme from what the Giants did uh, to what San Francisco likes to do. And and that's, again, so when you look at a lot of his best plays, he is is very good when he gets a chance to get on the move, right? Get out into space, whether that's getting, again, to those second-level blocks on outside zone, whether that's getting out in the screen game. Whenever he gets a chance to be on the move, that's when he's kind of at his best. In New York, they were more of a gap scheme run team, more of a, a power team, right? Man blocks, power blocks. Think like the stuff that Jim Harbaugh liked to do except for from shotgun as opposed to from, you know, heavy personnel groupings. Um, so those sort of blocks. And then from a center, that's a lot of like uh, down or back blocks, basically, where it's like, okay, I have this shaded nose tackle next to me here. I need to just, it's just more of a downhill. I need to push you out of the way. It's more of a strength type of, of skill set, right? Um, that's not his best game. I mean, he's not awful there, but that's not the best use of his skills. So I think going to a scheme that does, more zone runs and especially more outside zones where he's going to have an opportunity to get out on the move, get up to the second level and pick off some linebackers. That's going to be very good for him. Since 2015, the Giants have used zone runs at the third lowest rate, just 39.1%. And their outside zone percentage was the lowest in the NFL, 8.3%. So when you think of what it is that the Niners are going to do, which is basically put him in a scheme that runs one of the most um, or the highest amount of zone runs, you're basically going to have him on the run a lot in the run game. And then pass protection, we already know that Richburg is a hell of an animal. 
So this also, I think, helps answer the other question, which is one of the questions that you get from uh, from a lot of Giants fans. They say, is Richburg too light to run block effectively? Because he's not a, a traditionally large dude. He's yeah. not the 320-pound. I mean, you look at Josh Sitton and Norwell, two of the yeah. guys that we previewed. They're both in the 320s, maybe even 330s. And I'm not sure that Richburg breaks 300. Yeah, his he, like listed weight is 300 on the dot, which means he's probably closer to like 290. And and they just gave him that old high school media <laughs> book bump. You know what I mean? But but ultimately, the, I think the question and and the knock that you'll see from a lot of Giants fans is, well, he's in the backfield a lot. He can't with he can't hold up against these big interior defensive tackles, and that's a problem. And ultimately, I think the scheme change is going to be something that helps him because he won't have to hold up in more of a power game. But I would also argue that defensive tackles, especially on the interior, are getting smaller and lighter as you get more of that, you know, Aaron Donald mold of player. And against those players, I think Richburg holds up just fine. Definitely. I think, yeah, he's going to be fine Uh, in what they're going to ask him to do in this offense compared to what he was asked to do with the Giants. um, It's all going to fit what he excels at more so you're going to have again fewer of those situations where he's at a a strength disadvantage because he's not going to really be asked to move people in that way as often now the other key question for richburg is health because of course he did not play a full season last year he only played four games in 2017 before he landed on injured reserve due to a concussion and and that's that's scary especially when you're talking about head injuries and you're talking about someone who was out for a full season as a result of a head injury so david are you worried about Richburg's injury history? So it seems, I mean, I think it's a, it's a fair concern for sure. Um, it seems like it was maybe blown out of proportion a little bit. So there was a couple of reports, and then I saw also Jeff Schwartz, who he was a teammate of Richburg's. Um, it kind of mentioned that, like, yeah, he was actually healthy a couple weeks. Like, he was ready to go and could have been back out on the field a couple weeks after he sustained that concussion. And the Giants were basically like, nah, you're going to go on IR and sit for the rest of the season. So it seems like there was some stuff, which was why he was kind of eager to get out of there during this free agent period, right? There was never really much conversation about him re-signing in New York. Um, so I don't know. You, you can take that for what it's worth, uh, you know, coming from Schwartz, who is his teammate, who I'm sure, you know, on one hand, if you wanted to be skeptical, say like, oh yeah, he's, of course he's going to look to protect his friend and former teammate type of thing. But I think it's fair, um, you know, that like, hey, maybe, you know, stuff does, behind the scenes doesn't always work out the way that we, uh, you know, kind of think it does. So I don't know. I, I think right now it doesn't seem to be like this recurring thing. I mean, before that, he never really missed significant time. He did play through like a hand injury during the 2016 season, but he played every game that season, I believe. Um, and so it just kind of like maybe was something that affected his performance a little bit compared to that. 2015 year which was really kind of his standout uh season so far in his career so i don't know i I don't know that there's anything there that's like a recurring thing or uh something where you're worried about that popping up again in the future you know one of the things that i remember taking away from scouting academy was putting as much context around performance as you can and and injuries are important when you put that when you put them into the context of performance and when you think of richburg's career the last time that he was fully healthy was 2015 and he was one of the best centers in football. He had an 86.5 overall grade, which placed him third. And his pass block grade of 85.6 put him second in the NFL. 2016, he messes up his hand. Still has a decent year. But yeah, it was not, still like an average, like 
I think he had a 70 something grade that yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, so still, still, still again, solid. A pretty big upgrade as compared to Daniel Kilgore. Yes. Um but but he was playing through that in that that messed up pain and that injury all the way through 2016 and then of course by 2017 he only plays four games and in 2017 he was able to at the very least sustain the level of play that he was playing in 2016. Uh and we don't know what that grade would have finished out at the end of the year. So I think this is this is an upside play for the 49ers. And last question I've got for for Weston Richburg is where would you put him in terms of our tiering system? It, would you put him at a tier two player or would you put him at a tier three player based on contract performance and, and all the things that we've been talking about so far over the last month and a half? I think he's tier two. So, uh, you know, he's not enough there, even though he's going to be, I think, a key player and, and somebody that the 49ers certainly envision as a key player in their offense. Um, positional value wise, like he's just not going to have it to get up to that tier one spot, you know, that that prime spot. Um, but he's certainly somebody uh, he's going to be 27 by the time that this season starts entering the prime of his career. I mean, he's going to be somebody that that should be around for several seasons. It's certainly the 49ers want to be around for the long term. Um, so, yeah, I don't think they'll be looking to move on from him anytime in the near future. And just to put a bow on it, let's ask the same question about Richard Sherman. Uh, is he a tier two or tier three player? We're going to give our answers at the same time. I'm going to count down from three. We're going to go. We're going to go on a silent four. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to, I said a count down from three, right? Three, two, one, tier three. three. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yep. Cool. We agree. I'm glad because otherwise we would have had to spend a lot of 10 minutes <laughs> that I hadn't budgeted for the show. So I'm glad that we agreed. <laughs> all right. And let's get to the star of the show. The main event. The thing that you've all been waiting for. I know. The, the contract that had me in a tizzy this morning, I couldn't oh, even man. concentrate at work. It was difficult to get through a full eight-hour workday. I'm pretty sure I only worked about four hours. And that's because we signed one Mr. Jarek McKinnon. Jarek the Jet, he is officially a 49er. The Niners have also tweeted out the contract, which means that it is signed, sealed, delivered. Whether it was done with a quill, not sure, but it is official. Jarek the Jet McKinnon is indeed a 49er. Now, contract details, because this has been a definite point of contention over Twitter over the last, I don't know, eight or nine hours. It's a four-year deal, $36.9 million overall. But, frankly, now that we've seen the details of the deal, it is a what I would like to call the ripcord structure. <laughs> it allows the team to pull the ripcord at multiple points within the contract and get out relatively problem-free. So let's we're not going to talk about all of the individual details and minutia of the contract because it's difficult to track because you're just listening to our voices. But the key bits are that, A, he's going to be on the roster in year one. There's a lot of money tied in to Jarek McKinnon in year one. And his dead cap, if he were released, were to be about $11 million. Only Garoppolo has a higher, as of right now, has a higher cap hit for 2018. So Jarek McKinnon is going to be a 49er in 2018. But now we zoom to 2019. His cap number drops all the way down to four and a half million. And even if we were to cut him, we'd still only see one and a half million dollars of cap space or, or of dead money hit because his guaranteed dollars were really, really low. And then once you get to year three, you see some escalators kick in and you see some other bonuses kick in. His cap number jumps back up to 7.3 million. By year four, the final year of the deal, it gets up to 7.7. Ultimately, what this tells me is that the contract is. A two-year deal with options in the third year and then in the fourth year. 
And so the Niners basically have Jarek McKinnon for two years. And if they feel like they need to cut him after two years, then they're paying a million dollars in dead cap. Yeah. And the, so the, in the fourth year is, is technically in the contract an option. The third year is practically an option, right? Which is kind of the way that things are structured. Um, they, they'll be able to get out there if they want to. Um, it's a lot of money. It, it is a lot of money for a running back. Um, so normally what we've done so far is we've talked about the player and then we've talked about, you know, the, the questions. But let's get to the questions first, because I want to do, do you want to get the play? Let's get the player first. All right. Let's, let's get the- let's let's postpone this conversation, because I think we're going to spend a little bit more time on there. Um, thankfully, McKinnon is somebody that we spent some time on during our free agency previews. Right. So this was somebody that we identified beforehand. Um, so hopefully, you know, you're, you're already kind of a little bit familiar, at least with what he brings to the table as a player. Hold on. I'm going to put on a recap. I'm going to put on my heart emoji glasses right now. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and put those on. I'm going to go ahead. I have a fresh beer, uh, ready right now to drink. Uh, please continue, David, the player that is Jarek McKinnon. Let's do it. So I think one of the things that we've started to identify with, I think, especially certain positions, but it seems to be, you know, I think a theme across the roster as a whole is they do value athleticism. Oh, right? I thought you were going to say Georgia Southern. We just dropped that. Uh, yeah, Georgia I mean, Georgia Southern, Southern right? Uh, uh, Georgia Southern only for the backfield. That's I'm sorry, Joe Williams. You're out. You went to the wrong school. Um, <laughs> he's a freaky, freaky athlete, right? So we talked about, that was one of the things that drew us to Matt Breida, right? Was is this combination of, okay, he looks pretty good on tape, but he came from this small school, right? Can he compete at a high level? Um, well, turns out he's one of the best athletes in the entire NFL at that position. McKinnon was also in that spot. So when he uh, came out in 2014, he was the number one running back, according to Spark, uh, in that entire draft class. It's something that the team values. It's something that they look at, especially at key positions. And I think right now we... Uh, can very obviously point to running back as being one of those positions. Speed is one of the team values that Kyle Shanahan put up on the wall in the 49ers locker room. They are they value speed and they value athleticism. And ultimately, the reason that we focus on a metric like Spark or P-Spark is because when it comes right down to it, we're not saying that athleticism is necessarily going to mean that you are a fantastic NFL player. All that we're saying is that really, really good NFL players are fantastic athletes on average. That's just the reality of the NFL. When you don't have to worry about being a better athlete than the person that's lining up across from you, you can let the other things take over. Your film study, your anticipation, your processing, your game speed, all those things can take hold because athleticism is off the table. You don't have to worry about it anymore. When you look at the elite players in the NFL, the J.J. Watts of the world, the Jadavian Clownies, they are very, very good athletes. They're fantastic athletes. It doesn't mean that just because of their athleticism, they were destined to be good football players. It just meant that more than likely, if you're a fantastic athlete and you're a better athlete than everyone else in the field, well, then there's just a higher probability that you're going to be a good football player. This is why you can identify players like Matt Breida. This is why you can identify other players that have really, really good combine drills and three cones and explosion drills. It's not that by by necessity, they're going to be good athletes. It's just that it is more than likely that they're going to be good NFL athletes because they don't have to worry about the athleticism component, which is a very, very important part of the NFL today. Right. I think a lot of people take stuff like that and and say that, oh, it has no value, right? Oh, the combine has no value. And I'll be honest, I, I think I actually remember us like in a very early version of this podcast talking about the combine and calling it the underwear Olympics and all of those sort of cliches that get thrown out. 
Um, but one of the things that you learn right over time is that like nearly everything has some sort of value, right? You, it's, it's a matter of placing the proper amount of value. Nobody's saying that athleticism should outweigh what you see on tape, right? Or, or that you should draft players solely based on their spark scores or, or anything remotely close to that. But it is part of the conversation. It needs to be a consideration. And if you see a player that, I think this is especially true in the draft when you're kind of wondering how these players are going to translate and they're a poor athlete, they, they tested poorly in that regard, you have to wonder whether they're going to be able to hold up against the best athletes that the sport has to offer. Nothing in the NFL is a sure thing. So really what you're doing is you're dealing in probabilities. What is the probability that this player is going to be successful? What is the probability that this player is going to succeed in my scheme? What is the probability that they're going to fulfill the rest of this contract and perform at a level that I need them to in order to win games? Well, having a great athlete at a position increases the probability that they will perform well. And that's all you're doing when you're identifying high P-Spark or Spark athletes. You're using a composite score that hopefully increases your probability of hitting on a player. And that's all that this is. And so when we talk about Jarek McKinnon's athleticism, whether it be because of a draft pick or because of or because of the fact that we signed him as a free agent, we are saying that his high athleticism score increases the chances that he ends up being a great player, especially when you've got a team that focuses on that as a philosophical choice that says, yes, we want athletes and we want speed. And I think they do that for a very, very specific reason. And that's because when you acquire a lot of fast twitchy, explosive athletes, you're increasing the probability that they end up succeeding for your team. But let's let's go ahead and touch. I mean, I know people are going to have questions about it. He's he is going to get some carries, right? He's going to he's going to touch the ball in that fashion as well. So what can we expect from him running the ball in this scheme? I think it's going to be a good fit, right? He shows a lot of the traits that, again, are those that you see from successful backs in this scheme. And that's the ability to be patient. So a lot of times in the outside zone, right? So you're, if you think about what this play is trying to accomplish, you're trying to stretch the defense out. Uh, if you can, you want to get to the outside, right? And be able to use that speed to get up the sideline, right? If you can hook, kind of pin all the defenders inside and, and create that sort of seal, you want a guy with the speed to be able to get around the edge, get up the sideline and create a big gain for you. But it's also a lot of times more often what it is, is you need somebody that can be a little bit patient, right? They, they need to be able to, to let the blocks develop a little bit, be able to read them clearly, and then have that burst to once that hole opens, okay, I'm going to stick my foot in the ground, get upfield, and get the yards that are there. And that's what he is. It's, it's this idea of patient to the hole, but burst through the hole, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my time getting there. I'm going to wait. That's a, that's a tongue twister. Sure. Pa- I mean, patient through the hole. To the hole. Oh, see? There, I patient already... to the hole, burst through the hole. I feel like that is entry number one in the Better Rivals Bible. Like this is <laughs> this is this is our hymnal. This is number one. Hey, I mean, patient to the hole, burst through the hole, <laughs> and everyone collectively drink. Take that a lot of different ways. Um, but it's important in this scheme. I mean, it really is, uh, and it's something that successful backs are, are able to exhibit there. So I think he, you see that there. They did run. Um, you know, at least a decent number. A lot of his best plays in Minnesota from a, a running standpoint came on outside zone blocking schemes or those similar. They like to do uh, kind of this toss action off outside zone blocking where they also had 
receivers that were kind of crack back in on the on the play side there. So something that also you'll see in Shanahan's offense, something that they do. Brita had some uh, successful runs this past year on on very similar concepts. So he's going to be able to do it. Uh, he actually runs uh, in between the tackles a little bit better than I expected, to be honest. Like I think there is. Uh, he's not going to be a guy that you just have to get outside and just always has to be in space. Like he can get yards between the tackles if that's what you're asking him to do. But again, outside zone is kind of the staple of this, uh, this offense. That's what they want to do. I would expect that they want to do it even more than what they did last year because, uh, you know, Carlos Hyde wasn't quite as good. There was a little bit better doing inside zone stuff. Um, so I, I would expect that number to kind of continue to go up in the future. And he's going to be a good fit on that front. I think ultimately we've got to really change our thinking around the running back position. And we have we've been trained since we've been watching football at whatever age you started football watching to think about running backs as well running backs. This is it's in the name of their position for fuck's sake. This is (laughs) this is what you think they should be able to do. And yet in today's NFL, the running back is really not going to provide the most value as a runner, but instead going to provide their value in the passing game. When you think about players that can run the ball at a solid level, well, you can find them anywhere, especially in Shanahan's system. Bobby Turner and Shanahan have been doing this for years, and they've identified unheralded players who can excel in this scheme. You can put on a list, and we've done it on this podcast before, the number of players that have been undrafted or drafted in later rounds that have had 1,000-yard seasons in this scheme. And it's because running the football in this scheme, if you can identify a couple of key traits, is not necessarily difficult to do. But running backs who can produce in the passing game, well, they add more expected points to your overall offense than those that just simple are than those are simply going to run the ball. When you think of the Saints, the Saints are a perfect example. Mark Ingram, he is a good runner. He's a very, very good runner. He was touted as a very, very high running back coming out of Alabama. And all of a sudden, you know, the Saints draft him and they're like, oh, they're going to have a great running back stalled running back stalled running back they like it's like well is mark ingram really the guy we always have to add complementary pieces and then you had alvin Kamara. what does alvin Kamara do he basically lights a fire under that entire offense why because alvin Kamara's value came in the passing game and that helped open things up for lots of other pieces including mark ingram and those two players combined were able to add an element to to the offense in new orleans that made it very very deadly when you think of Alvin Kamara as a runner, you shouldn't be thinking about much. You should be thinking about Alvin Kamara as a pass catcher. And this is the future of NFL running backs. What they can do in the passing game is more valuable than what they can do in the running game. And so ultimately, when it comes to paying someone like Jarek McKinnon, I am way more comfortable paying the, the value of the, the salary that we do to someone like McKinnon simply because of what they can do as a pass catcher and in the passing game. And if we were to offer that same kind of contract to, I don't know, say a high draft pick or Carlos Hyde, yeah, or Carlos Hyde, that that doesn't become as valuable to me. It absolutely is not. So ultimately, the running back position is morphing and is changing, and the high value running backs are going to be the Alvin Kamara's of the world, and the pure inside zone runners like Carlos Hyde are not going to command that much money, nor should they, just because they're not nearly as effective in today's NFL as a pass catching running back is going to be. Yeah. And and again, just like, it's not only the value, right? It's how easily you can find those players. Scarcity. Um, Yeah. Carlos Hyde. He's always for his entire career. He's been an above average runner. He's not a bad player. The problem is what he does well 
is something that a lot of guys do well. You you can find that skill set very easily, and, and I think especially in this scheme, and when you're talking about Bobby Turner, uh, you know, again, if you're unfamiliar, the 49ers running backs coach has been the running backs coach with a Shanahan, basically dating all the way back to uh, Mike Shanahan's tenure with the Denver Broncos. So he's he's been identifying players that fit what they need you to be able to do in this scheme for a very long time. And he's proven to be very, very good at that. And it it really is. It's the easiest thing in football. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty that you have to deal with when you're trying to project things and find players and all that. Uh, the NFL is a, is a very random sport. But of all the things that you're trying to look for, like that's the easiest one to identify and find. You don't need to place a high price tag on being able to do those things well. And that's really the answer to question number one that many 49ers, many 49ers fans have, which is why not Carlos Hyde at a much cheaper price? Why not Carlos Hyde? Because he's not going to do the things for you that you need in today's NFL. He's not going to catch the ball. Well, dude had like nine drops. He led the league in running back drops and he was like top three for overall drops in the NFL. And he's not even that great of a pass blocker. No, he's I mean, he's a, actually a very bad pass blocker. Um, and you need like you need to be very careful about like, oh, Carlos Hyde had a ton of targets and he actually ended up with a high number of receptions and all this stuff. And that means that he's a good receiver. A lot of those were just like that's how the offense is built. Right. And you had quarterbacks that were willing to check down, which is something, um, you know, that like I think before last year was wasn't as common. Right. The quarterbacks the foreigners had before that weren't as willing to get the ball out to the running backs. It wasn't as big a part of the scheme. So those numbers were just there because he happened to be the running back on the field, and and that's how the play worked out, right? It wasn't him doing anything special. He wasn't uh, showing great skills as a receiver. He was just the guy that got to go out of the backfield and turn around and catch a pass. Hashtag CJ Beathard. So the other question is, all right, we're, we're paying, you know, we talked contract already. And while it does offer the Niners a lot of rip cords, they can get out of the contract, especially after year one. It's still a lot of money. It's still, you know, it, it, like seven, seven million a year average over two years. And, and then it, it eventually escalates to that point. But you're still talking about paying you know, $50 million over two years, irrespective of the cap hits. So the other question I think is, you know, we were we also loved Dion Lewis. We thought that he would eventually be too rich. We thought he was actually going to get the Jarek McKinnon contract. And we thought McKinnon would get a, you know, a bargain bin or mid-level contract. But instead, Deion Lewis got $5 million a year. So why not just pay Deion Lewis like $6 million a year and have him come to the 49ers as opposed to paying Jarek McKinnon $7 million a year? I mean, that would have been great, right? Uh, look, I, I think um, we both love Deion Lewis as a player. Um, I think we both loved how he would fit in this offense for a lot of the same reasons, right? Like, yes, he has, uh, you know, he was able to do a good amount as a runner. I think especially last year in new England also has a lot of value in the passing game, um, is able to create yards on his own, do a lot of those same type of things. Uh, I mean, we don't, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's, that's always tricky with free agency. It's very easy to say like, Oh, we should have used that money and signed player X, right? Whoever it may be. But we don't know that like that player wanted to come there. And, you know, I think like Aqib Tlaib, right, is a great example of he's a good player. Like it would have been great if they could have brought him in. But ultimately, he valued 
familiarity, right? He wanted to go either back to New England and or back to Wade Phillips and go to a scheme that he was comfortable with, that he knew he would excel in, and and that was that, right? It didn't matter what anybody else had to bring to the table. Like, that's what he wanted. You don't know what the motivations of these other players are. So, yes, it would have been, I think, great if they could have signed Deion Lewis for less money, but we don't know that that was an option. Yeah, I think the the Titans are, A, going to be pretty fun to watch next year. Yes. I'm definitely going to tune into way yep. more Titans games next year. But I think that the Titans are looking to be the Patriots South. And I think Mike Vrabel probably had, you know, not quite a helicopter over the Bay Area, a la Justin Smith. But, but I think that he was able to make a compelling case for Deion Lewis and for Malcolm Butler that he was going to be able to recreate something that felt very familiar in the Patriots culture that they were not going to be able to get anywhere else. Cause I, I basically Vrabel's a better Patriot than Jimmy Garoppolo is what I'm trying <laughs> to say. And, and that's okay because Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be a better Niner than he ever was a Patriot. Definitely. Yeah. So I think it, it's, you know, it's, I, I, I definitely understand like looking at those scenarios and, and sometimes I think um, if there's real interest there, like, yeah, it's it's worthwhile looking into, but we, we don't know like that that was even an option on the table. So I think you kind of have to dismiss it to an extent. So I think the second key question, and this is something that we've been focused on since basically Kyle Juszczyk. Yep. Since we We've been focused and we've asked this question several times is, does this regime, does Lynchahan have a blind spot for players that they like, especially at non-premium positions? And when you look at the history here, they've given now pretty like top market deal to Jarek McKinnon. And while I do think that it gives the team options, it is one of the richest running back contracts currently in the NFL. They also did the same thing for Kyle Juszczyk. They basically paid a fullback kicker money, which sounds hilarious, but it's something that you shouldn't do ever. And they also gave top of the market value to Malcolm Smith, someone that I don't know anyone was really competing over or fighting over. So when you look at these three data points in the context that is the two-year, really one-and-a-half-year regime that is Lynchahan, do, does, does this team show a propensity to give outsized contracts to players they feel they have to have at non-premium positions? I mean, it's starting to add up, right? Like, I, I, I will say the McKinnon deal, again, isn't in the same, I think, sphere totally is what you had from Juice and Malcolm Smith. Like, yeah, I think I think McKinnon's value as a pass catcher kind of negates that. Right. Yeah. And, and and the deal itself, like, isn't as bad. Right. There's a difference between, OK, you're giving Jarek McKinnon uh, basically like his cap hits slash guaranteed money, like the money he's likely to earn. I mean, it's going to pay him as is basically like a top five at worst top 10 in this deal running back, right? If this were a comparable to juice contract, we would have given him more than uh Le'Veon bell. We would have given him like $20 million if this was juice's contract, essentially. I mean, that's where like juice's deal is so far ahead of every other running back that, it, or excuse me, every other fullback that it's just like fucking mind boggling. Like you, you just don't even understand how you get to a point where you're willing to pay a fullback like 200, 250% of what like anybody else at that position is making. Um, Malcolm Smith, again, had a a very, I think, poor track record of performance, gave him a ton of money. And these were talking about positions, uh, really, when you get outside of specialists, right? When you get outside of kickers and punters, like 
like some of the least valuable positions in the game. Um, and so when you go out and it's one thing to like players and, and for them to be fits in what you want to do and all of that stuff, but to go to these non-premium positions and feel like you have to give premium money to these players uh, is a problem. And it's, is definitely something that needs to be like monitor. I think with these guys. So follow me on this, on this story. This is for those listening conjecture, my thoughts, my opinions about what may be happening at 4949 Centennial Drive and what may explain these outside con- these outsized contracts. So I think Kyle Shanahan and Lynch are a team. They work together. I think Kyle Shanahan knows what he wants and he tells the front office and he tells John Lynch what he wants. And I think Kyle Shanahan says, you know what? I need a fullback in order to make this offense go. And I think he says, I need a pass catching running back in order to make this offense go. I think he says, I need a center to make this offense go. And then he says, hey, defensive coordinator, what do you need to make this defense go? And he says, I need a will linebacker that knows my scheme, and I need someone that I can trust on that defense, especially as the play, the younger players that we're going to draft grow. And, and so they figure out the prototypes for these players, and they say, what kind of player do you want? We know that, this, that these meetings happen because they've talked about them for quarterback, and they talked about them for Jimmy Garoppolo. And they use Jimmy Garoppolo as a prototype for go get this kind of quarterback. They've been very open about that. And then luckily, Garoppolo fell in their lap. But now they're in a state where they're like, okay, maybe Juice is the prototype for fullback. And maybe Malcolm Smith is the prototype for Will in that Super Bowl year. And, and then he says, okay, uh, Lynch, go find players like this. And then John Lynch says, wait, but I could just go get that player. I don't have to get a player like that. I could go get that player or get a player very, very comparable. And then they get into the Deion Lewis sweepstakes because maybe that's their prototype. And then Deion Lewis ends up choosing Vrabel and Patriot South. And he's like, oh, no, I'm not, I don't want to be a Niner. And they go after Akeem Tlaib. And then they're like, well, okay, we have to go get someone else. Oh my God, Richard Sherman's available. And they have to go get a Will linebacker. They, ha- they have to go get these players. And then John Lynch says, I need to get these players for my head coach. And then they get into a bidding war with one team. And all of a sudden you have the contracts you've got. Like that seems like a likely story for what ended up netting these types of contracts. And it seems like that could be a problem if you've got a GM who's fixated on getting a player or a specific type of player to the point where he's not able to to find other reasonably priced options when we don't have this much salary cap space. I I mean, I think it's a. I think it's very plausible. Um, it kind of seems to be the way things are, are going right now. I think the problem is when you go to, you know, it's one thing if you're doing this at quarterback, right? And you're doing this at cornerback and edge rusher and, and these these positions that have a ton of value and really help your football team win, right? That's, that's the end goal. That's what we're all trying to get to, right? That's every, what everybody wants. They want to win games. And you you want to be able to break that down further and it says, okay, what helps you win games? And, and then go get those things that are most important. When you're looking at these positions, they don't really do it. And so it, there, there's it's one thing to be like this player, no matter what, at a position like quarterback. Okay, go go for it. Do it. Because if you get that quarterback and you're right, it doesn't matter. Like you're going to be great. It, everything's going to be fine. You're, you're going to be competitive every single year because you have this great quarterback. If you have this, what you think is a great fullback, who 
fucking cares? Like it's not helping you win games. Same thing with like a linebacker, especially one that's not really all that great in the past game. Um, you know, these, these non-premium positions, they don't move the needle enough to be at any cost players, right? You need to, to be able to set a value and say like, Hey, we like this player. We think that he does fit, but also recognize that what he does can be found elsewhere. If for potentially less money, if, if some team gets out of their mind and decides that we want to pay also Kyle use like fucking top 10 running back money, that's fine. I think the other thing that may be in play there um, that I was kind of thinking about with McKinnon, especially like, I, I don't think it necessarily applies as much to the other deals. I mean, maybe a little bit to juice, but is this idea of market value versus actual value? It's like the, the analogy that I kind of thought of was like a fantasy football auction draft, right? And you think of this as like a very, like your friends and family draft and you're going in there and everybody's, you, nobody has any idea what's really going on and you're, they're using like Yahoo standard rankings and they don't have any clue, right? And you're fucking set. You got your research. You know what the values of all these players are. Like you're, you're, you're really above everybody else at that. And so you get to a player that comes up in that auction and nobody else is willing to pay more. They're like, I don't know who this player is. They're a $10 player, right? Nobody's willing to pay more than that. And you're like, hey, I know from all my shit here that he's a $30 player. That would be like you just going and offering them $30 and getting the player at that point rather than getting them at 11 when everybody else would have been out, right? So that's the thing that I kind of worry about is, is they're competing against themselves. They found things that they think are valuable to them, and that's great. But if nobody else really thinks they're, va- they're that valuable, you don't need to pay them that much money. I don't know that that's the case with McKinnon the, in terms of there are not other teams that were interested. I think the Jets were a team that had a lot of cap space and Schefter reported, I think it was Schefter, that reported that they were in a bidding war with the Jets for someone like Jarek McKinnon. So I feel like yeah. that makes the most sense for the outsized contract. I don't see that being the case for Juice and I don't see that being the case for Malcolm Smith. So those are the two contracts that worry me. I feel sure. like McKin- McKinnon is a contract that is it's in, in this weird middle space, right? It is. It is. And and it's in this weird middle space because I do feel like there were there was probably a little bit of the we've got to get our guy when we didn't get Dion Lewis because they probably had those two guys as targets. And, and I think part of the hashtag aggressively prudent strategy was targeting certain players and going and paying top dollar for them. Yeah. I also think there's an element of of cap space not being a scarce resource. And we talk about resource scarcity a lot on the podcast, and it's because it matters. And and I don't think that the cap space, especially the way that the Niners have structured it thus far over the last couple of years, I don't think that's a scarce resource. I think draft picks are a scarce resource, but I don't think that cap space is something that you can't just create. Like the Eagles, I think think it was the Eagles, they re-signed their left tackle and all of a sudden created like $10 million in cap space just because they turned some money into like bonus money and all of a sudden, hey, $10 million, right? Like that that's that's the kind of stuff you can do with the cap. The salary cap is effectively a math trick. And the better you are at mathematics, the better you are at managing your cap. Definitely. And I feel like Paragmarate is fantastic at mathematics. And this is why we call him the Marathlete. And so I'm not worried about spending like as long as this doesn't become a super duper trend. I'm not worried about making a couple of contracts that, you know, whatever, because worse comes to worse. You end up Robert quitting a dude where you sign a terrible contract, you realize it's a terrible contract, and you trade them off to some player that, or some team that is ready to take on that terrible contract. 
you're just worried about whether these sorts of decisions that if you do look at it more in a vacuum, right? Not great. Running back at seven and a half million a year, uh, fullback for five plus million a year, a linebacker that hasn't been very good for whatever the hell he's getting paid. Um, like God. not in a, again, in a vacuum, not great decisions. Will those affect the current 49ers? Probably not. They got a shit ton of cap space and, and likely everything's going to be okay. What you worry about is as they continue to draft well, right? We saw what we think is a very, very promising draft class last year. You're now paying quarterback at top market. Um, as things get like, I think really at the point starts to be like two years from now, I believe yeah. um, you start to get a lot of players that are up for uh, that need to be resigned, right? What you're thinking are core pieces guys. Like when DeForest Buckner becomes, uh, you know, is about to hit free agency guys like, uh, everybody from this draft class, right? Akella Witherspoon, George Kittle, Trent Taylor, players that you want to keep around and extend that suddenly aren't going to be on these very, very cheap rookie contracts. When you get to that point where your roster is good enough that you're extending your own players, these sorts of mistakes become bigger. They become a bigger issue. They make it tougher for you to add talent and keep that cap flexibility in free agency from year to year. So what you're hoping is that they recognize, hey, we're good right now. Right now, for these next couple of years, it's not going to matter. And that it doesn't become a thing like, hey, they just are going to do this year after year, no matter what, and identify these non-premium positions and give them a shit ton of money in a couple of years when it does start to matter. At the, I think, David, you said it best when, when talking about the Jack McKinnon contract. And this is why I still have faith in what the Niners are doing. And I think that ultimately, even though the, the overall numbers are high, I still think the overall contract structure is, is important. And that's because when, when you look at that Jarek McKinnon contract, you said earlier when we were talking about this contract that it's it's a really good balance between knowing you have to pay a guy in order to get him here, but also knowing that you can find a running back pretty easily. So you want to build in the ability to cut a dude after just a couple of years when you find the next guy. And that's the contract that Jarek McKinnon has signed. Yep. He's signed a deal that gives him some money up front but also gives the 49ers the ability to cut him in just a couple of years when we find the next guy. And I think that especially at the running back position, we invariably will. So this is going to be a hell of a fun two-year ride, and it's going to be really fun to see Jarek McKinnon in this offense. I'm super excited. I still have like half of a purple beer to finish at this point, uh, (laughs) which also has, honestly, the can has red and gold on it in addition to purple. I mean, it's kind of perfect. It's the perfect... 49ers, Jarek McKinnon, you know, formerly of the Minnesota Vikings beer. I mean, all all things considered, it's been a hell of a good day. So that does it for the free agency recap episode of the Better Rivals podcast. This was uh, this was a fun one, man. I really enjoyed this one. I enjoyed all today. I enjoyed the podcast and uh, it it was a good recap. Make sure to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play or wherever you listen to these podcasts. Uh, leave us a positive review because they help other people identify the show, find the show, and it helps our rankings across all platforms. David, where can they follow you on Twitter? Uh, it's going to be at Newman NFL. Uh, you can follow me at Better Rivals, uh, and we'll be here next week. And it's draft coverage next week, draft season, man. Yeah. So I think uh, again, like we mentioned at the top of the show, it's it seems pretty unlikely at this point that they're going to go in on any major free agents. So. We'll get a quick recap at the top of the of next week's show, any other signings that happen, but mostly we're moving into draft coverage. I mean, that's the next big thing. Uh, we're, again, actually in a position where we can kind of spend some significant time previewing this stuff and, and be a little bit more prepared going into it. So uh, a lot of fun stuff to get to over the next month from a draft standpoint. Yeah, so it's uh, we're in the next phase of both season and podcast. We're going to talk draft next week. So 
Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, go Niners. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.